Please stand for the reading of God's word. Isaiah chapter 35, verses 1 through 10. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The joy of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man weep like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. And in the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even they are full, even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is the word of God. Good afternoon, church family. It's good to see you here today and be with you. I want to start by asking you to imagine something that will not be too hard to imagine, and that is snow. Uh, Particularly, I want you to imagine and try to recreate in your mind the joy and expectation that comes as a child when the first snow is falling. For some of you, this isn't too hard today. Um, but I want you to hold on to that and think about that. All the emotions, that, what you are going to get to do, all the fun things you have planned, what comes when the snow falls, the joy and that excitement. It's great. But there's a problem of snow, and there's quite a few problems. And one of the problems is not everybody likes snow. Um, one thing, it's cold. You can't stay out in it too long. It gets wet. Sometimes it can soak through your shoes that you planned on wearing. So you have to change your shoes right before you preach. Um, 
Also, even if you are like my daughter who loves snow so much that she only went to bed last night on the anticipated hope of building a snowman today, um, even if you love snow that much, it's fleeting. It goes away. It melts right before our eyes. Today, Isaiah gives us a picture of something opposite. Isaiah presents to us a vision of everlasting joy. It is the joy that will not fade and will never fleet, but will the hope of being in God's presence forever. Evil flees and joy will never end. So with this in mind, I want to pray for us one more time. And jump in today. Lord, would you bless what we do here today? I thank you so much for the opportunity to come and to proclaim your word. I thank you, God, that you promise us a joy that never ends. To know you, God. I pray what I do here today would not be my words, but God, you would speak and move and teach us how to trust in you and how to live with everlasting joy now in the brokenness and the reality of this world. Thank you again, God. I pray you'd be glorified. I ask this all in your son's holy and blessed name. Amen. Well, Jared and John Mark have done a great job in the last few weeks of setting up the context of what Isaiah is doing in this book. But the context here is really important. So I want to give just a little bit more to come back to. And where we'll actually start is with the opposite of what the vision in chapter 35 gives us. Chapter 35 is a prophetic poem in which Isaiah is giving a vision of a day to come. It's wrapped in the context of Isaiah prophesying to God's people throughout the entire book about really two things. There are two ways, Isaiah says, that you can choose. Israel, you can choose to trust in God or to not trust in God. What Isaiah often calls the trusting in the nations. And his prophesying, his speaking to the people culminates in these few chapters um, right before ours and and really culminates in chapter 35. But chapter 34 and chapter 35 serve together as the opposing or alternative answers to those two questions. What does it look like? What is the end of those who do not trust in God? And the answer Isaiah gives is in chapter 34. It is judgment. Ultimately, it's destruction. It's nothing good. It leads away from God. Those who don't trust in God, but instead choose to trust in the nations, will be put to shame and will be judged. And God says it's not just that the end is destruction, but the path is foolishness itself. Isaiah tells the people, that it's foolish right now. What we will see is there is everlasting joy. But the way of the nations, the way of not trusting God, is a way of shallow joy. It's a way of fleeting joy like the snow. Joy which is, in reality, no joy at all. We see the, the understanding of what is taking place in Isaiah's day is that God's people are in a bad way. The nation is split. There's Israel in the north and Judah in the south. There's unrest within and there's other nations growing outside and power and they're threatening them. 
And they find themselves in a place, a pivotal moment in their history. And instead of trusting God, they trust in some bad political alliances. What do they find when the pressure is on, when the moment comes upon them? What they find is that it all falls apart. And Isaiah has been telling them about this. He's been painting the picture back and forth. And he's even told them, this is what awaits you. The nations didn't satisfy or meet their needs, but left them deceived and on a path to destruction. They could have trusted God, but instead chose other things to try and satisfy them. God had revealed to his people all they needed for life and godliness to follow him. And they've got a prophet before them telling them where to go. And yet they looked at God and they looked at the nations and they chose the lesser thing. And this sounds preposterous to us, right? We've never heard of anything so crazy. Not familiar at all. How often do we settle for shallow joy instead of what God has called us to? We have all we need in him as we're going to see everlasting joy awaits. And that joy is ours now. But too often, like God's people of old, instead, we run to lesser things. I can't help but think of C.S. Lewis and mere Christianity and the image he gives of telling us sometimes we think we desire too much. But in reality, we desire too little. Like a child growing up in the slums, we settle for mud pies, making mud pies in the slums because we can't understand the concept of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. God offers us infinite joy. Particularly, we see this come out in times of difficulty. And this is true for our story here. As Isaiah is talking to the people there in, like I said, a hard place. The late, great John Randall's college speaker, man, um, a man I got to meet a while back, had a, had a quote that I'm going to butcher, but it used to go something like this. You is what you ooze, and you ooze what you is. And when you get squeezed, what you is oozes out. <laughs> you is what you ooze, and you ooze what you is. And when you get squeezed, what you is oozes out. In other words, in times of pressure, the real you will come out. The real you will show. Just as it did for God's people, so it does for us. us. I want to walk us through and look at some of the characteristics of shallow joy. And I want to ask you, this is hard, but I want to ask you to try to look for these as we see them in God's people. Also be thinking about how do you see them in your own life? Do you recognize any of these today? Here's some of the characteristics. First thing, shallow joy, like we've already mentioned, is no real joy. It's a temporary joy, a fleeting happiness. doesn't satisfy. One, another thing is that we see shallow joy is rooted in circumstance or situation. It's not rooted in something timeless or something greater, but it's caught up in what is going on right now. And because of this, we also see it's often associated with feelings or um, Emotions overly associated with feelings and emotions as opposed to action or decision. As a result, shallow joy also ends with us. 
It doesn't have any life beyond us. It doesn't outlive us. It doesn't get passed on to others because it dies with our emotions or with our particular situation or circumstance. It can be easily taken away or lost or chased. And it refuses, this is important, it refuses to acknowledge and name the brokenness of the world. Shallow joy can't acknowledge brokenness in the world because it's dependent upon pretending there's no brokenness. Right? It's no real joy, but it's a joy that wants to just mask over the hurt and the pain of the world. Turn that frown upside down. Put on a smile and trudge through. Right? Ultimately, what we see is that shallow joy is tied to idols in our heart. And false gods that we hold. I'm indebted to pastor and author Tim Keller here as I, as I talk about this. But what we see is he describes that ultimately we can understand false gods and idols by describing whatever I place my ultimate hope and trust in is really what I worship. Or in other words, whatever I expect to save me when the pressure's on is really my functional God. It's practically the thing that I'm worshiping. Now, I want to pause just for a moment because some, some of you may be getting ahead of me a little bit and where we're going to go. But I, I just want to make a note that anything we say, if we take joy, there are things we should and can take joy in. And we're going to get there. Right. So th- there are good things in creation that we should rejoice in and take joy in. And it doesn't mean that we're worshiping them falsely or making them a false god. Right. Like. I love pizza rolls way too much. I rejoice in getting to eat pizza rolls, especially when they come out just perfect, you know, the crispy amount. And, uh, right? Somebody knows. Um, there's great joy that comes from eating pizza rolls when they're just right. But, but I don't, like, put my trust in pizza rolls for my ultimate sustenance, right? Also, I know, like, sometimes pizza rolls kind of get soggy and, like, squishy. It's not going to be good. And sometimes they're like packaged as pepperoni, but when you get them, it's really meat and cheese. It's just awful. So, like, my ultimate hope is not wrapped up in pizza rolls delivering something to me, right? Like, I can take joy in pizza rolls, but it's not where I'm placing my hope, what I'm really trusting in, what I think is going to save me. What we're talking about here with a shallow joy and those who choose not to trust in God, that path looks and trusts in other things ultimately. And it says, this thing will save me. And so I'll give my allegiance to it. It can be a subtle thing that happens without us thinking about it. And I think that was the way it went with Israel, right? Let's look back and see these characteristics, how we see this in Israel. There was not real joy, but temporary happiness. And it certainly ended for them in calamity. It was rooted in their circumstance and situation. They felt they, they had a need. The political powers around them were growing and they were afraid for their lives. And their current circumstance and situation dictated how they acted. And so they, by their feelings, instead of taking resolute action and decision in the Lord, trusted in the feeling at the moment and went beyond what they were supposed to do and ignored the actual problems they had, right? The problem isn't that Israel um, at that time didn't have problems. No, they had big problems. In fact, I, I would venture to say their problems were bigger than they realized. And that's part of the issue is that they went to a solution that was lesser than the problems they actually had. When in reality, the greatest solution was right before them. The God of the universe was standing there before them, begging them to turn to him. 
But Israel instead turned to a political alliance with Egypt. And it was easily lost, taken away. And when that happened, when that happened, they were exposed. Right? What were they truly worshiping? Well, a name for some, it may have been God. But at that moment, when the pressure was on and the political alliance fell apart, there was panic. And suddenly the joy was gone. And with it came a moment of crisis in which they realized their real worship, the real functional God, the thing that they were putting their trust and their hope in was political safety, safety of their nation and not following God. See, this is still a danger for us today. I think about this past year is interesting. Um, is one way to describe it. Um, but something that the Lord's been wrestling with me about is that, you know, this pandemic was an opportunity similar to the one Israel had to expose shallow joy in our lives. Right? What is it for us? For you in this past year, you probably didn't struggle much with putting your hope in political alliances, at least not the type that Israel had or not in this country. But what about us? If we're honest, there were times we were squeezed and we didn't like what came out. There were times we were squeezed and we didn't like what we saw. For many of us this year, when we were squeezed, what we saw come out was a shallow joy and health. I confess this one, right? You didn't recognize it was there, but when the pressure was on and suddenly the illusion of good health was wiped away and there was a, a pressing health issue at your door every day, beating down the door and knocking on you, suddenly you realize, oh no, I'm in a panic because my joy is shallow. It's dried up because it was rooted not in something everlasting, but in something fleeting. What I was actually worshiping Instead of God was this false idea of good health. And maybe for you it wasn't health. Maybe it was your job, your career, right? Maybe the pandemic came on and you thought you were really good at what you did and now suddenly you're doing it in a way you've never done it before. Think Zoom and you're trying to learn new things and, you're, and things are looking different and you just can't quite figure it out and now suddenly you're questioning. The joy's gone. You're panicked. What was I actually trusting in? What was I relying on? Was it something everlasting or was it my own ability? And once that went away, so did everything else. Because it's a shallow joy. Maybe it wasn't health or job, but maybe for you it's your family. Or maybe your schedule. Or the illusion of control. Or so on and so on. We are not so different from God's people back then. Because today we still struggle to put our hope elsewhere. We still wrestle with God, we know Isaiah tells us what the ultimate outcome is. We can look back and see. We know the way leads to destruction. And the path itself is foolish. It's just a shallow joy that can be taken away so easily. But still we struggle. Like Israel, too often finding ourselves squeezed and not liking what comes out. So what do we do? What to do. The way has been laid out for those that choose not to trust in God. And it's a path of foolishness and its end is destruction. But Isaiah says there is a better way. The path of those who trust in God, the pilgrimage of everlasting joy. 
It's a path of everlasting joy and a path that Isaiah lays out for us in his glorious vision today. It is one that we see that leads to God himself. And one thing I want us to note right up front is that it is a path of great reversal. You see this? Look back to the text. Let's look at I want to, verses one and two. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. The wilderness, the place that was barren and, and wasted, will suddenly become a blossoming place place of growth. The desert that was dry will have water and we'll see plants growing. And the places that were looked down upon will suddenly receive the glory that was reserved for those places that used to be the places of splendor because now God's glory will be everywhere. Right? Look, look at verses 6 and 8. We'll pick up, for the waters break forth in the wilderness and the streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. Again, it's a picture of a great reversal that's taking place. There's some beautiful imagery here. Isaiah is calling us back, and where we sit, we get a a, a beautiful view, because we get to look back with Isaiah, but also look ahead at what he didn't yet see. Right? That there's this imagery of Exodus, the original deliverance of God's people. Out of the wilderness they came, and God delivered them and provided for them, even though it was temporary at the time. Right? It was still wilderness, And they were still stuck there. But God provided and he delivered his people. But it leads us to a greater deliverance. Right? It points us to a greater deliverance that we get to look back on. Look with me at verse 8. And a highway shall be there. And it shall be called the way of holiness. The way of holiness. We know the way of holiness has a name, and his name is Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. Say, it's all about Jesus. Jesus is the awaited Messiah and Savior. Think to the the Christmas verse in Luke 2.10. Fear not, I proclaim to you good news of great joy, for a Savior is born today. Jesus fulfills the prophecy here in Isaiah. Isaiah would look to it and they would say, as John Mark has directed us, there's some they would look and see part of this prophecy fulfilled in Hezekiah, a king that would come. And and maybe some would look and see part of it was filled in the return from Babylonian exile. But they're still looking. There's still one to come. And Jesus is the one. Jesus is the way of holiness himself. Jesus is the one that opened the blind eyes. That helped the deaf to hear. That brought the lame man to leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. In Jesus, we see this happen. Jesus brought physical healing, but he also brought spiritual healing. Do you guys see this picture? Isaiah is telling us the one who created and sustains the wilderness went to the wilderness for us and will renew the wilderness. And bring it to fulfillment. Jesus is the way to God. Jesus alone saves. It is God's work 
And the way that we can have a walk in relationship with God, it comes through Jesus. Look at verses 9 and 10. And here we'll get into what we, we've been looking for, what we're longing for, what Isaiah is pushing us for, everlasting joy. The characteristics of everlasting joy are so much greater than shallow joy. It's not, first thing, it's not our work, right? You see this? It is firmly a result of what God does. One commentator noted on verse 9 when this word redeemed, what it is telling us very clearly is that Jesus is the doer and we are the recipients. Shallow joy is built upon what we do and our circumstances, how we feel, but everlasting joy is founded upon God's finished work. It rests in him alone. Jesus is the great redeemer. He is the redeemer. He is the doer. We are the recipients. Look at also, we see that he has ransomed us. This word is an awesome word telling us that we were once prisoners. Once again, a great reversal. We've gone from prisoners to those freed by the Lord, by the Redeemer, the one who has come and given himself for us. Jesus has come. The Savior is here. There is life in him and is found nowhere else. Our freedom has been bought by God. It's marked by All these reversals are pointing us to what Isaiah wants us to see is the one great reversal. What he's describing, the everlasting joy, the path of those entrusting God are those that one day will look forward to what he describes as the one great reversal. And that is the reversal of the curse of sin. It'll finally be broken. The curse that we've sat under, the brokenness of the world, you know, now it is so hard for us to even imagine. Like Isaiah is trying to get across the people, this day will come. It rests sure in God, and yet we can barely see it. Because how can we imagine a world that doesn't have brokenness? How can we imagine a place without death and sickness and hurting and pain? What Isaiah says is, look and see, it's not by your doing, but it's by God's doing. And it's not because you can earn it, but because God bought you back. He bought you. He ransomed you. He redeemed you. And it's not because you found the way, but because God put you on the way and has provided the path for you and has guided you along. Isaiah paints this picture for us to help us to try to understand this great reversal. I want to ask you to try to picture it with me now. If you need to close your eyes and think about whatever you need to do, I want to join with Isaiah in thinking about this day that will come, the great day in which all of the effects and the consequences of sin will be undone and God will renew all things. This is the picture before us. The weak will be made strong. The feeble will be made firm. The anxious will fear no more. Do you see it? The blind will see. The deaf will hear. The lame will leap. The mute will sing for joy. Can you hear it, friends? The wilderness will become a tamed land. The desert will produce streams of water. The burning sand will be like a pool that you can stand in. The dry ground will bring forth springs of water. 
Do you feel it? The habitation of the wild animals will be a flourishing, holy habitation. The dangerous wilderness will become a redeemed path for those of the Lord to walk on. The prisoners and exiles will be freed by God and brought home. The wandering lost will find their place in God. The means and end of everlasting joy is God himself. Think about what David said in Psalm 16.10. For in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Friends, this joy, this everlasting joy, this glorious vision which Isaiah is calling us to look ahead to, it is ours now in Christ Jesus. By his gracious doing. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. That whoever believes in him will not perish but have life everlasting. This is the good news of the gospel. But as C.S. Lewis reminds us, I think all too often we think too little of it. And don't understand the holy implications for us. We have access to this everlasting joy now. Jesus has, bought the, has paid the price for us once and for all. Jesus lived the perfect life and died on the cross in our place, rose from the grave, defeating the power of sin and death, and has risen, ascended to the right hand of God, and he will return. He will come back and make all things new and bring us to this glorious day that Isaiah is envisioning. It's by his gracious doing a sure and eternal hope wrapped up in God's merciful work and unchanging character. See, everlasting joy is not dependent upon the whims of men or circumstances, but it's founded on the rock, the one who will never change. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our life. He is the Redeemer. He is the way of holiness. And he is the one who has bought us back and ransomed us for the Lord and purchased for us now the everlasting joy that one day we will participate in. And yet, and yet, the reality is, we live in this world of brokenness. We live in this world where sin still has a grasp on us. We live in this world where Isaiah's glorious vision is still a day to come. A day we long for. If you're thinking this is great news, but life still has lions for me. It still has deserts. It still has sorrows and sighing aplenty. Then I would say you're right. How then do we go about living out this everlasting joy in the land of the broken. Well, Isaiah had an answer. Look with me at verses 3 and 4 in our passage. Isaiah is prophesied and showed the eventual outcomes. For those that don't trust in the Lord, it's a path of foolishness and a way that leads to destruction. And for those who trust in the Lord, it is everlasting joy and a way that leads to God himself. But Isaiah also recognized that they were not there yet. Verse 3, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come 
and save you. Bible scholar Alec Modier says the, the implication of this little stanza is that the people of God, that Isaiah understood, the people of God are still in the period of waiting. And they need encouraging. And the encouragement that is offered for them is the hope that is set right in front of them. Your God will come. We can relate to Israel because we know that Jesus has come. We get the blessing, the benefit of looking and celebrating his first coming. This is what part of what we do at this Advent season because we look back at Jesus' first coming. But we relate with Israel and that we are also waiting for his second coming. We still wait for his return. We also in the, are in the period of waiting. We often refer to this as this time as the already not yet. The time between the times. Jesus has come and has inaugurated his kingdom. And that everlasting joy is ours because of the finished work of Jesus and the cross and the resurrection. And yet he has not yet consummated the kingdom. He will, he will return and make all things new. But we leave, live in between. So the everlasting joy of God is ours now in Christ. The Holy Spirit is our guarantee of it, Paul says. We can know he came once and so we can have trust he will come again. Our hope is right before us. Your God will come. So now in the land of the broken, living out with everlasting joy looks a little different. To borrow a phrase from the great frontman of U2, Bono. I think he actually hit something on the head here. And he said that to live with everlasting joy now is to live with a defiant joy. A defiant joy. Here, I think, are the characteristics of defiant joy that we see. Defiant joy is not a different joy than everlasting joy, but it is the everlasting joy now in the land of the broken, awaiting that day, of the great day when God will make all things new. And so, ever, er, so defiant joy is true joy. It's not fleeting. It won't fade away. It won't melt like the snow, but it will endure forever because defiant joy is rooted in God and the finished work of Jesus. It's not about what you can do, what Isaiah can do, what any of us can do. It's rooted in God alone. Defiant joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It's an overflow of God's presence in us. What will be produced by His Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And it is an action, a decision to rejoice. To rejoice no matter the circumstance or situation, to have a more deeply rooted understanding of God and to choose to rejoice. Defiant joy is contagious. It doesn't die with us because it's not dependent on us, but it's rooted in God. And so it passes on to others and it points others to Jesus and not us. When you have a defiant joy that is rooted in the everlasting joy that is yours in Christ Jesus, people will take notice. Because it's so different than anything the world has to offer. God has made it so we can know him and live to make him known. Defiant joy will pass on and outlive us and point others to Jesus. Also, a great gift of defiant joy is that it can never be stolen or lost. 
It's not ours. It's God's. Because it rests firmly in God, we don't have to worry about somebody coming and taking it. We don't have to worry about what will happen in the world and whether this joy will leave. But it is a trust in God that endures because God endures. He is not changing. Same yesterday, today and forever. And so our hope is sure. Our joy is solid. Importantly, defiant joy knows intimately the brokenness of the world and has the audacity to choose joy still. I think of Hebrews 12, 2 and 3. When I think of this, Jesus, Jesus knew what he faced. Jesus knew what he was coming to do. There's a song by Reliant K called Celebrate the Day, one of my favorite Christmas songs. And there's a line in the song that he's praying. He's saying like a prayer. And he says, from the first time you opened your eyes, did you realize that you would be my savior? From the first breath that left your lips, did you know it would change this world forever? It always sits with me powerfully when I think about Hebrews 12, 2 and 3, because the author tells us Jesus knew the cross was before him. And yet for the joy that was set before him endured the shame of the cross. He pressed on taking the cross. And so the author can tell us when you're weary, when you grow tired, consider him who endured such hostility from sinners and press on. Defiant joy knows brokenness because Jesus was broken for us. Defiant joy took on brokenness. He was pierced for our transgressions. Bore our wounds. By his wounds we are healed. Defiant joy knows the brokenness and chooses joy. Defiant joy also binds our hearts and minds to God as we intentionally face the world reflecting on the reality of who God is and who we are in him as a redeemed sinner in grace. I'll say it again, there's a lot. Where where shallow joy misses the mark and takes us away from God, defiant joy draws us closer to God. It binds our hearts and minds to him because it intentionally calls us to face the reality of who God is over all of circumstances and situations. So when the pressure comes on, it's not squeezed out of what comes out is more of God because our hope is set upon God. A defiant joy binds us closer to God because as the pressure squeezes, we look all the more to our glorious Savior. And we find in him All we need. I think also a byproduct of this is that defiant joy um, leads us back to what we talked about uh, when I when I referenced pizza rolls earlier. James one tells us that all good gifts come from God and point back to him. And so a defiant joy can take great joy in the creation of God. As it points back to him, as it gives glory to him, 
And so a defiant joy isn't limited, but in fact is a much more broad joy. It doesn't just have the depth that shallow joy is lacking, but it also has a much broader range of what we can take joy in, because now all of creation is ours to glory in. Right? That's the picture Isaiah has painted for us as we're looking for. Remember? All of creation will experience this reversal and will have the glory of the Lord there. And so we take part in this now by glorying and taking joy in God's good creation. Defiant joy recognizes good gifts and rejoices in them and acknowledges the good gift giver. As we think about living with defiant joy, I have just four practices that I want to offer as observations from Scripture about how can we go about knowing and living in defiant joy in the land of the broken. These are four simple practices, and and really we've already touched on all of these, but I just want to make them a little more explicit. So if you're like me, and maybe this helps just so you have something to take away this week, I want to call us to this and think about these things. So four simple things, the practices of defiant joy. One, we need to be, if we're to be a people of defiant joy, we need to be a people that practice lament. We've spent much time talking about this. But just to say again, we of all people have to be a people that name the brokenness in the world and in ourselves. Be a people who bring that brokenness to God. To be honest with God about what we see in ourselves and what we see in the world, and to mourn and to weep and to cry. It seems counterintuitive when we talk about joy, but only then can our joy be true and firmly rooted in the current reality we experience in Christ. Right? To lament is to recognize the brokenness of the world, That everlasting joy is ours, but we still live in a broken world. And so right now it looks like defiant joy. So we have to be a people who practice lament. Second and third go together. Um, I'll name them both. Um, Number two is to practice daily gratitude. And number three is to borrow a phrase from Brother Lawrence. Practice the presence of God. I want to just point out two places I see this in the scripture, how joy and rejoicing go together with these two things. Paul particularly makes this point in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 and Philippians 4. What we see, Paul says, is rejoice always, pray without ceasing and give thanks in every circumstance for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Did you catch it? What are the three things that go together for God's will? You rejoice You pray without ceasing, live intentionally before God's face, and give thanks. Philippians chapter 4 is is a little more to it, but essentially Paul says the same thing. He comes to them and he tells says, rejoice. Again, I will say rejoice. And remember, Paul's in prison while he's writing this, most likely. Rejoice. I'll say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to, to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. Do you see it? There it is again. He says, rejoice. He says, live intentionally before God. Bring everything you could ever be anxious for before God and do it in thanksgiving. Give thanks for everything. So if we want to be a people of defiant joy, we have to be a people who practice lament, who practice daily gratitude. 
and practice living in the presence of God. I just challenge you simply, a real simple way to, to, to bear this out. Um, just make it your goal. When you wake up every day, the first thing you, you say or think is a, a statement of thanks to God. And when you go to bed, the last thing you think or say is a statement of thanks to God. And you do that and you can build these habits of gratitude throughout your day. In the same way, it builds living in the reality of the presence of God. Finally, if we're to be a people that live in defiant joy, I think something we need to practice, and this is one that gets me excited, is that to take part in God's ultimate work of cosmic reversal, we have to make time to celebrate and rejoice. We, of all people, should be a people who celebrate and who rejoice, who make the time, who practice actually taking joy in God in such a way that others see it and wonder, what are they doing? What, what do they have that's different? In the midst of the craziness of this world, why are they celebrating all the time? I think we should be a people who celebrate the small and the big and in everything find ways to remind ourselves of God's faithfulness. The Old Testament Jews were great about this. They had a feast for everything, right? We learned something from them. Right now, it looks kind of different. It's a little hard, right? But I hope maybe soon there will be a day when we can start practicing. Let's just feast all the time. I want to celebrate. We should listen to Andy Minio and Lecrae. Celebrate more. Take joy in the small things of life. Rejoice. God is with us. To be a people of defiant joy means we must be a people who live in the reality that we have in Christ and celebrate him and rejoice in him. One day, our joy will no longer be defiant. Because all will be as it is meant to be. There will be a day when our joy will no longer be defiant because all will be as it is meant to be. But until that day, let us be a people that live defiantly in everlasting joy. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for this day. Thank you that we can rejoice in you. God, I, I am, I'm just thankful. I praise you. And I pray that we would be a people that would look to you, God. Help us to avoid the way of the foolish and the, the path that leads to destruction, to trust in anything other than you, and help us to see the goodness that comes in trusting in you and choosing the way of everlasting joy. Lord, I pray you would help us to be a people who live in, in your presence and fully realize the, the joy we have in you, the gift that is yours, and that we live in such a way other people would see and want to know you more, God. I pray for this specific group of people. Would you mark us as a group of people who find ways creatively to celebrate and rejoice and who walk in the joy of the Lord to the glory of your name and to the good of your people that more would come to know you. God, I pray for those who are struggling. I pray for the broken, the weak, the anxious, 
And Lord, I pray right now, would you give them boldness to hear and to see the words from Isaiah spoken straight to their heart. God, from you. Strengthen their hands, God. Make firm the feeble knees. Speak strength and no fear, God, to fear not to those who have an anxious heart. You, God, will come. You will come and save your people. So let us rejoice in you. We thank you, God. We look forward to that day. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.